Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. All right, go for it. Good, all right, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever in the heck in the world you are. It's the one and only, the notorious, glorious Vita Grill Economist coming to you live with my main man, El Cuco CJ, oh, who is working the airwaves oh, in the background, mm-hmm. making making sure the air this broadcast is coming out crispy and clean. Folks, check us out, roguemoney.net, Rogue Money on Steam at D2, uh, every single podcasting app known to humanity, where everywhere you want us to be, plus a bag of chips, and also check out our sponsors. Uh, that is going to be thecryptoschool.io, thecryptoschool.io. Learn about cryptocurrencies, learn about exchanges, learn how to trade all in one place, cryptoschool.io. Also, check out uh, Liquidbase, liquidbase.io. Whether you need to liquidate $5,000 worth of cryptocurrencies or $5 billion worth of cryptocurrencies, we have you covered. We are working off the and utilizing the power of the LBMA Good Deliveries Delivery Network in order to get your cryptos into gold. And then from gold, we can convert it into anything in the world. It's it's amazing, the power behind this technology. Check it out, liquidbase.io. And last but not least, if you have debt collectors coming after you, they're threatening your life, they're threatening to kidnap your and hold your firstborn child as ransom, as collateral, and maybe you, maybe you want to get rid of your firstborn child. I don't know. But in either case, call Remain Calm. RemainCalm.net, folks. RemainCalm.net. Let these guys handle the debt collectors, the asset protection. Let them cover you and take care of you. Whatever you're going through, bankruptcies, whatever hard times, go ahead, get a hold of Remain Calm. They're the ones that could do it for you, RemainCom.net. And with that out of the way, London Paul is here, folks. London Paul is here. We decided to combine shows this morning and put it all together and give it to you guys in a delicious deluxe package. You get you get you get all three of us. You get you get London Paul, you get CJ, you get myself. It's a triple shot deal, folks. You're not going to find this anywhere. And right now, while I have all of you as captive audience, I would recommend you go to the seriousreport.com. Subscribe to the membership that he has, that London Paul has over there at the Sears Report. And, folks, get the intel. Get the intel. Get a well-rounded look. Look, you cannot create for yourself an echo chamber. You know, I've had people that will sign up to the Sears Report, and they're like, well, V, I ha- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cancel the Sears Report because he doesn't like uh, – uh, he, he doesn't say favorable things about QAnon, and QAnon knows everything. Well, folks, here's the reality of it all, okay? We don't know who QAnon or what QAnon is at this point, okay? But what we do need to know is you need to get a, a total worldview. And what that means, guess what it means, folks? It means you're going to have to digest information that you don't agree with. You don't agree with, but you need to process, and you need to file it away in the back of your head. That's what critical a- analysis is all about, okay? And one of the best places to get critical analysis is the serious report. And, folks, that is serious spelled S-I-R. I US the serious report.com. And with that, with that being said, the man of the hour, London Paul, how are you, sir? Welcome back from holidays. He's well rested. Yeah, well, good morning, fired up morning. And good morning, good, morning good afternoon, good evening to to anyone who's all over the world who's listening. And obviously, good morning to CJ as well. Yeah, we're uh, very well, thank you. And 
melting in the 90 plus degree heat that we've got in the UK. <laughs> it's, it's a bit weird. That's but, uh, weird. We don't know, <laughs> we, I'm freezing over here. Yeah, I think it's, it's 60 outside over here in New York. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. It's, but uh, but I suppose it's better than being freezing cold the other 340 days of the year or whatever it is. But anyway, I joke. But yeah, where do we start? There, well, there's just an infinite amount of things going on. I think what's a fair point to say is everything we've discussed you know you've i mean i've we've discussed the whole time i've been on here and i discussed years before you've discussed everything that we've ever said is unfolding and it's coming to pass and obviously yeah. the principal thing is the belt and road initiative the eurasian trade zone and everything in that regard i think the one thing that i'm still surprised at is that so many people don't realize that china and russia are the principal architects of ushering in the multipolar world Right. And that everything they do, and when I say everything, I mean literally everything they do is in coordination and cooperation. That's bilaterally, that's internationally, that's geopolitically, it's trade, it's infrastructure, it's gold, it's silver, it's oil. It's the, the new financial platform, it's everything. And in the process, what are we seeing? The degradation and the influence of the cabal is, is failing and it's sort of rapidly and slowly all at the same time. Some things are more apparent than others. But And then one thing that sort of interests me, okay, it's from, uh, was that person, who was it, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was some 28-year-old, she's running her first campaign, and she's ousted Joe Crowley in somewhere in New York. I don't know which congressional district it yeah, was Yeah, it was now. The, uh, the 14th congressional district, Um and the most amazing thing about that, Paul, is here's this kid who's an upstart, no political really in any experience whatsoever, is a sheep-dipped socialist Kool-Aid drinker, doesn't know anything. And she's talking about uh, the yesterday's interview. I, I they, they interviewed her. Um, uh, what the hell is her name? Alexandria Cortez or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they interviewed okay. her on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on on uh, CNN and uh, CNN said, "Hey, you said that you would impeach Trump. You would bring articles of impeachment in when you get to Congress." Um, and she said, "Yes, I will use it using the Emollient Act or the Emollient Clause." And I, I thought I misheard her, Paul. Then I had to rewind the YouTube. I got to back the video interview up and then play it again. And she said it again, the Emollient Clause. I was like, "What?" Then I rewinded it again, and I played it, the Emollient Clause. <laughs> and I said to myself, I began to laugh hysterically. This stupid child, okay, is regurgitating something that her basement-dwelling, acid-popping, drug-using, Democrat National Committee handlers have told her to regurgitate and repeat. And nobody questions it. It's gotten so bad that Newsweek, in fact, wrote an article the very next day about how Trump could be impeached using the emollients clause. These idiots I'm, on the left clearly have no understanding of law. The emollients clause was actually a build-up right after the War of 1812. What, it was probably one of the reasons what caused, amongst many reasons, the War of 1812 to begin with, the last <laughs> British-American conflict. And that clause had to do with the issuance of titles and nobility. Hence, over here, we don't have dukes, and we don't have duchesses, we don't have lords and sirs. We don't have any of those titles. That's what the emollients clause is all about. At, at what point did President Trump? Uh, did he appoint CJ? Did is Jeff Sessions known as Sir Jeff Sessions, the Duke of Alabama? <laughs> no, he's no, he's Lord Jeff. Oh, Sessions. Lord. 
<laughs> Lord, <laughs> but you know, but, but but I think what it highlights eloquently is just yeah. how the well, and I'm not partisan about politics, but you can just see the Democrats are in total and utter meltdown. They're crazy. They've gone crazy. They've all decided to. I don't know what it is, Paul. I think they've all in their mouth. I don't know if it's acid. I don't know if it's PCP. I don't know if it's angel. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's if it's psychedelic mushrooms. But at the same time, they've all bit down on it. And they've been running on this this rabid, rabid lithium ra- enraged uh, craziness. And then when yesterday, when uh, Justice Kennedy says that you know what he's going to step down. And now Trump has a chance of putting another conservative nationalist judge in the post, which some rumors are saying could be Trey Gowdy. It could be Trey Gowdy. Um, my God, the left had another meltdown, Paul. I, well, it's yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's kind of, well, I was going to bring that point up. I mean, I think, I think it's, I mean, undoubtedly they're going to go into total meltdown because that, they never envisaged that he would have resigned because they're those kind of posts that people stay until they die, literally. So the fact is, yeah, he's resigned and it's effective from the end of July. So, yeah, Trump then gets this second chance to nominate someone. Um, and the thing that's interesting, Kennedy was always seen as, well, from what I understand, was that he was always this kind of middle ground guy who, who really generally was the, the vote that made it count one way or the other. So the question therefore is if he's replaced by someone who's very sort of sympathetic to Trump, then it could totally change the whole sort of Supreme Court and, and how it operates. And and of course the Republicans changed Senate rules last year to get Trump's conservative nominee, um, was it Neil Gorsuch confirmed, loan a threshold to advance Supreme Court nominations to a simple majority vote. So of course, the Democrats are going to be in meltdown because also, of course, there's, I mean, arguably, if Kennedy's going to resign, is is it Ruth Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer? They're both in their 80s or oh, ones yeah. nearly in their 80s. Now, what, could they stand down? Is it possible, you know, within would be before the end of this year, I'm not saying they will, that somehow Trump would then have a, a significant majority effectively backing him in the Supreme Court? I mean, it's a, it's a distinct possibility that that could happen. And that's why they're in total meltdown. And uh, and we talk about pivotal moments and why, you know, for me, the endless debate about the Mueller investigation, the endless debates about uh, the FBI and the DOJ and the problems is ultimately, you know, these are symptoms of the problem. They're not the cure of the problem. And the cure of the problem lies in places that largely none of us know even exist. Till those, the root causes is, is dealt with nothing's going to change there can be a lot i mean you mentioned uh nunez the other day nothing came about as a result of that uh, and the list goes on and on and we can i mean it's probably worth talking about peter strock who obviously had his behind closed doors um right. uh grilling in inverted commas and i use that in probably the looser sense of the word because obviously it was behind closed doors and he was supposed to explain his this apparent, you know, bias against Trump and um, and then his role in the Trump-Russian collusion investigation and the exoneration of Hillary Clinton for using this private server while she was Secretary of State. And, of course, the, the little bits leaked out about it. Someone, there was odd cases where someone said, well, the lack of, of the natural investigation of Mueller was something that was evident from the hearing. 
Um, there was also comments that it was a waste of time because Strock just didn't sound and he kept hiding behind the classified information clause. And apparently he took three FBI investigators who told him not to discuss, not to disclose anything and basically don't answer any questions. Now, the story goes that apparently this eventually this is a closed behind closed doors deposition. Then there's all the classified information to sort out whatever that actually ends up meaning. And then there's going to be a public hearing eventually. But the question is, what is any of this going to achieve? I mean, Horowitz is supposed to release another report. I think there's a lot of this idea that the, the last report was was redacted in some way, but it wasn't redacted publicly and people didn't know about it. Well, I think the reality is there's, a, there's another report on Strock that's due at some point in his role in the Russian investigation and the use of the, obviously, the Pfizer warrants to target, for example, Carter Page. is supposed to be a report on that. But again, when does any of this get acted on and does it even get acted on? I mean, Strock could do it. There could be some public... Um, meeting or public you know um, testimony is it going to achieve anything and i think until you get to the root cause of the problem nothing is going to change i know people get very despondent by me saying that and saying it doesn't you know they don't agree more well, fine don't agree with me but the question is well if we're sat here in three or four months having the same discussions because we all know where the pro we know where the problems are but it's actually getting to the point that somewhere in the US government structure and the legal system, that those people who are responsible are actually brought to, to you know, justice, they're adjudicated properly, rather than all this kind of high octane rhetoric in the press and then all, everything dies a death. I mean, what's gonna happen with Strock? Are we gonna suddenly in two months say, well, that died a death and nothing came of it? Till someone, something actually gets done that acts on the, the obvious, and Horowitz's report certainly was very obvious in terms of what it was saying, but it's acting on that. And, and subsequently, there's going to have to be a whole bunch of more investigations that are going to take how long to, to achieve. But ultimately, it will get resolved. Just not, it isn't going to get resolved as quickly, I think, as people imagine. Yeah. You know, um, you have uh, the situation here, which I find to be absolutely incredulous, um, this whole Comey investigation and this whole Mueller invest, I'm sorry, the, the investigation into Comey. And now, Paul, now, I mean, just yesterday, uh, the news uh, wires, the media sources are out there saying that, and, and, and this was the headline, Mueller to now focus on Russia collusion. So the question becomes, what the heck was Mueller <laughs> doing for the last 18, 19 months? <laughs> what was he doing? Well, 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 precisely. I well. I mean, I think I think essentially, if that, if there's any reality to that, it they're obviously just looking at everything and anything in any way that they could question Trump's impartiality. Maybe he could, in some way, they could, you know, end up in instigating impeachment. Again, they're just trying to find anything, and of course, it's probably a, a great point to now mention about the fact. Uh, of Bolton's visit to to Moscow to meet Putin, and now obviously there's been confirmed that Putin and Trump are going to meet in Helsinki on the 16th of July. Uh, the location was wasn't really much of a secret, but I mean, obviously we're talking what two and a half weeks off now. Obviously, a lot of people in uh, of in the cabal and and their all their minions and their. You know, in NATO and across Europe and across the, you know, are all, you know, absolutely apoplectic that suddenly 
you know, Bolton's gone over and, and now we're having this summit and they're terrified of what the consequences of that will be. Now, I think what's quite telling is there are a number of points that came out yesterday from um, Bolton and Putin. And the first thing to say is Putin would not be having this summit with Trump unless there is some substance and reality to what's going on. He's not just going to turn up and pay lip service and do some photo shoot for for the world just to say, look, I met Trump. He's not in, He's not going to do that. He's have no interest. It has to have substance and reality. So Bolton went along and got some home truths about the reality of things that are going on now. Obviously, it's primarily he's just visiting to set the stage for a summit and there's going to be some preliminary discussion around the, the topics that would have come up. I mean, they admit, they, they said they discussed it, they discussed it, maybe it is disgusting, but uh, the strategic stability in the world, they talked about the control of nuclear armaments and, and disarmaments, and then they focused on regional issues like Syria, Ukraine, North Korea, and the US decision to leave the JCPOA, and obviously under the relating to the Iranian nuclear agreement. Now, Obviously, with regards to Ukraine, Putin's made it very clear that the problems lie with the Ukrainians. It's got nothing to do with the Russians. They are the ones who won't implement the Minsk agreements, which is why the world keeps going, well, until Russia implements the Minsk agreements, we're not going to remove uh, sanctions on Russia, even though the fact is the Minsk agreements don't even apply to Russia. It's got nothing to do with Russia, but it's just an excuse, as we know. Putin also made strenuous statements to the effect of, you know, we didn't interfere in your elections. And for goodness sake, just stop going on about the fact that, you know, Russia's made attempts to exert influence on the U.S. elections. There, there was discussions with, with Bolton regarding U.S.-Russian relations in general. There was no mention and discussion of sanctions because what's the point? Sanctions aren't the issue. That's just another symptom of, of, a, of a far bigger problem. But let's put it this way. Bolton went away under no illusions that unless there is real progress with the US on Syria, on Ukraine, on North Korea, and the JCPOA, then there's no point having a summit. And if it turns out to be a complete farce, then Putin will just walk away from it and will have nothing to do with it. And they can't be any more strength. This has got nothing to do with with the idea that Trump's just going to show up for a photo shoot because Trump doesn't want to do that either. But of course, Putin knows exactly Bolton's track record and history. He's fully aware of of his role on in terms of geopolitical instability across the world in working in previous administrations. But of course, now the question is, okay, so when Trump and Putin meet, what exactly is going to be discussed? I know there's this lot of idea out there that there's this grand collusion between Putin, Xi, and, and Trump, and the most certainly is not. They've always been very clear, China and Russia, if, if Trump plays ball, they know that what he's trying to do, they're fully aware that in reality, he's trying to drain the swamp, remove the cabal, and, and move the US in a different direction. But all the while that he's involved in, in processes in the likes of Syria, which are contrary to that, and do you know, rightly or wrongly, whether Trump's, you know, just very badly advised, which I think it largely is, but there's the Russian Chinese view is there's too much neocon influence inside the Trump administration now on foreign policy. And on that basis, they have to treat Trump accordingly because 
the end of the day, it's what it's, you know, Trump may think one thing and he's trying to wrestle with a major problem in Washington. But if his actions dictate that he does things that have a neocon focus, uh, then, of course, they're going to act on that accordingly. And that will be made extremely clear to Bolton that that is, you know, there's zero tolerance of this. They, they're simply not going to to tolerate you know, those kind of ac actions anymore from the U.S., and of course, then we, what do we see on this? The U.S. is part of this process as well is regarding the OPCW, which is obviously, for anyone who's not aware, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Now, they, the members of the OPCW, have, have approved this UK proposed draft motion, which expands their organization's power to attribute responsibility for chemical weapons attacks in Syria. So whereas in the past they would have said, well, there is evidence to suggest that there was chemical weapons attack here, they, they would never try to apportion blame on anyone. Now, of course, Russia immediately has come out and said the decision to expand the mandate of the OPCW is illegitimate. And they've pointed out that the conference of the participating states went beyond the scope of its mandate whilst adopting this decision, which I would agree. And Zakharova even went as far as publicly as saying that it was adopted as a result of political manipulation, as well as a direct bribery of a number of delegates and outright, and she said outright blackmail from London and other countries. Now, of course, Moscow rightly doubts whether this, you know, the Chemical Weapons Convention or the OPCW could even really have any authority going forward after the expansion of its mandate. And they've said, of course, a lot depends on the practical behavior of, of countries such as the US, the UK and their allies, and of course, the organization secretariat at the same time. Now, obviously, yesterday's vote, in essence, I think it's a very serious blow to the, the prohibition of chemical weapons convention and the OPCW itself, because obviously the, to give them powers to determine the perpetrators of chemical weapons attacks, really, in essence, threatens the whole system of international relations. And we may argue about the whys and wherefores of the United Nations, but ultimately, previously, the UN Security Council was only qualified to make such judgments. And we already know that Russia and the OPCW differ on the issue of chemical weapons attacks in Syria, for, including, obviously, the latest ones in Duma now. When I see all this happening, it immediately sets major alarm bells off in my head because if it relates to the OPCW's ability to determine who was responsible for a chemical weapons attack, what do I immediately think? Well, let's watch for the bogus framing of Assad going forward with further chemical weapons attacks in Syria. That's the natural progression of this, of this, um, this judgment. And we've talked about this previously, the risk of it, and what do we find? We talked about this as well, that Trump administration gave them a financial injection of $6.6 .6 million. And what, what did I hear yesterday? That the white helmets are in the usual places where militants are losing battles with the, the Syrian forces. I mean, it's just so ridiculously telegraphed. It's unbelievable. And the white helmet trucks were seen yesterday loaded with missiles, um, filming equipment, etc. And then well, they were observed... Those aren't missiles, Paul. What they are, they are large syringes that are used to inject <laughs> the entire swath of people that are maimed, hurt, 
or injured. That's what the white helmets are there for, Paul. Those aren't missiles. Those are syringes. They're carrying medical equipment. <laughs> well, that's probably the explanation, Kevin, yeah. And, of course, they've, you know, there's people who observed them putting all sort of powder and liquid into war hats. And the white helmets then left f to a number of locations, including Idlib, and, which is terrorist stronghold. So what's the odds we're going to see another chemical, you know, false chemical weapons attack in Syria? And then all manner of bullshit coming out about why it happened and what happened. And then what's what's um, the U.S. going to do? What's Trump? Because Trump administration set the bar that, well, if it's proved that there's chemical weapons uh, attack, uh, an attack in Syria and, and Assad's responsible, then we're going to launch missile attack. Well, seriously, do they? I mean, I think that's some topic of conversation that would have cropped up with Bolton yesterday that we are aware of this and it better not happen. Now, of course, the problem is that the, the U.S. administration doesn't have control over these organizations, rather like they don't have control over the so-called rebels who at one time were fighting the, the U.S. cause, and then they, a lot of them left. They joined Daesh. They, there was other instances where weapons, they were selling weapons to third parties, and they didn't do anything they were supposed to have done. No surprise. I mean, no one should be shocked by that. But the question is, the... <clears throat> The argument is: do, What control does the white does anyone have over the white helmets? I I think it's highly questionable. Was the U.S. has any capability to do that? But you can be sure that this ratification, allowing the OPCW to apportion blame on a nation, is all telegraphed for another false flag chemical weapons attack. And why are we discussing this? Because it's good to get all this out in the public. I'll probably have to put an article up on the website about it because the more it gets out there. Sounds ridiculous, but believe it or not, it makes a difference that it stops these things happening because when it's in the public domain before it happens, when something happens, then people start to ask questions. And it's good now, finally, that the Russians are saying, we're aware of this, we're aware of these things happening, and we're not going to tolerate it more. In days gone by, diplomacy meant nothing was said about it. And that was to the detriment and allowed a lot of these false flag events happening. So it's something... There would have undoubtedly been part of the discussions with Bolton, as would have been the issue of the U.S. and their involvement with so-called rebels and what they're doing, and also in these de-escalation zones where even Daesh operatives are running to hide in them. And the U.S. is saying, well, to, to the Assad, uh, you're not allowed to launch any attacks, in, even though there is a mandate within the de-escalation zones to allow anybody to root out such a... Uh, Daesh operatives, etc. That is allowed, but they, they're allowing them to hide that. The, these are things that have to change, and I don't doubt for one minute that Bolton would have mentioned, uh, sorry, that uh, Putin would have mentioned all this to Bolton in, in significant detail. And the tolerance of Russia is non existent now. Either this is the one time that the US is going to have to say, okay, enough's enough. We're going to have to bring an end to this whole Russophobic nonsense. And Russia's to blame for everything in the process on, on a geopolitical level. The question is, how does Trump handle this? Because we know he's going to have the Democrats screaming at him, the US media screaming and foaming at the mouth about it. He's going to have NATO and countless Western leaders all foaming at the mouth about him meeting Putin. But it, it, it could be a sort of 
hugely significant turning point in in relation but also there's going to be the idea oh well they already know it. it's all being discussed everything's already agreed no nothing's been agreed nothing's been discussed this is trump's real opportunity to change the course of history in a very positive way with the with russia and it's going to be a long process we agreed it's got a lot of trust issues from russia's perspective but it is an opportunity and hopefully it's something that trump can grab with with both hands and use it in a very positive, constructive way, because he certainly did that in North Korea. He decapitated the neocons and Bolton in the process with to do with North Korea. He has the opportunity to do that with Russia, although the price is a lot higher personally because of the ongoing Mueller investigation. And that's why it's been dragging on and on and on. It's got nothing to do with Russia. It's just a, the, the sword of Damocles to hang over Trump so that he never was able to form strong, solid relations with Russia because that would have been the destruction. Another, well, a, a huge dagger to the heart for the cabal. But the other thing is, I think no doubt Bolton would have been told, do not try to use uh, Trump to drive a wedge between China and Russia because there's no doubt that is exactly a neocon tactic. They will do everything they can to try and drive a wedge between Russia and China, even though it's farcical and it will never happen. But undoubtedly, that is something else that would have been certainly in their thought process that, okay, if we're going to get Trump to engage, and maybe we could leverage him to, to try and you know, drive a wedge between the Chinese and the Russians, because there's no doubt they're far more fearful of China now than they are of Russia, even though they should realize that they are joined at the hip. And as we said, everything they do geopolitically is discussed and coordinated in every single nation. That's why if you look at what they're doing across Africa, what they're doing across Eurasia, it's all in coordination. It's all in agreement. They never step on each other's toes because that level of agreement exists. I mean, notionally, I don't think in the history, I, I mean, I can't talk about ancient history because I don't know, but in certainly in modern history and in modern time, you will never see two nations more closely joined together than the Chinese and the Russians. And and anyone who thinks you can break them apart. And and there's also this idea that China's going to just sort of use Russia and then throw them into the on the scrap heap, or Russia's just using China to get leverage and then they're going to dump the Chinese, has absolutely no understanding of what is going on and what has been happening. In, in a very huge overt way for the last five years or so. Paul, recently we've had news uh, that South Korea wants an energy pipeline coming from Russia into South Korea to take care of their needs. This was announced. This is huge development, and this is definitely, without a doubt, the entire Korean Peninsula being integrated into the into the Eurasian uh, economic zone. Uh, what's your take? Well, I can say first, you, you now you've mentioned it. I discussed this with our podcast subscribers a number of weeks ago that this was going to happen because that's the sort of where where podcast subscribers get a lead on everything that's going on. But yes, I mean, most definitely that is part of the plan because by by having the integration of the north and north and south and the unification. It, it allows a pipeline to be put straight through from from Russia into or, uh, North and South Korea or from China into North and South Korea. For it, currently, otherwise, you'd have to put it across um, 
oceans were or the you know, my geography is not great on the ocean around there but there's risks with tectonic activity which means putting pipelines in is 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 risky doing offshore but in terms of onshore yeah absolutely it's and it's the integration of north and south korea into the eurasian trade zone and what does it offer well currently you know south korea has to import all its lng again has to import 99% or something ridiculous like that and it's hellishly expensive whereas if they're able to get it directly from from the russians it's going to be significantly cheaper and there's huge economic benefits for the north koreans because they get transit fees as well as well as the fact that they will um, also be able to take benefit of getting cheap lng of course that significantly irritates and angers the the cabal and their desire to uh, to export us lng across the world even though it's 40% more expensive and of course it's all part of the the link up into the belt and road initiative and already we're seeing north and south korea starting to talk about infrastructure talk, starting to talk about economic um you know moves to try and in terms of unifying the two nations the biggest problem both of them have is the whole subject of denuclearization because the argument is until that's achieved whatever that means then the sanctions are going to be kept in place on north korea which is going to impede the ability to to have that reintegration between the north and south and and for them effectively to link up in that way through the Eurasian um, you know, Triangle and the and also the Belt Road Initiative. But yeah, it's a huge development. But every day, there's these massive developments. And on face value, people will read them and go, well, so what? But no, they're massive. They're huge because they don't, they're not just indicative of the fact that South Korea gets cheaper LNG. It's what that link up does and how it allows that whole peninsula to connect and ultimately What's going to unify the North and the South? It's not military might. It's economic cooperation. It's the Belt and Road Initiative. It's bilateral trade. And it's realizing that all this military uh, nonsense that's gone on, all the idea of dividing the North and the South was purely a cabal tactic because they wanted the bogeyman in North Korea, but also they didn't want South Korea to, to obviously have stronger bilateral relations with the Chinese. And the Russians, well, that very much becomes part of the equation. So, yeah, it's a huge, huge development. And in the fullness of time, it will come about. And people keep saying, you're not going to see the unification of North and South Korea. Well, you most that is absolutely going to happen. And I first spoke about this publicly five years ago. That in one of the big developments in the future will be the end of the isolation of North Korea, the reunification of North and South Korea and the integration of North Korea into the global economy and obviously the benefits for China and Russia in the process. These, these, were, and these weren't gases. These were things that were known were going to happen in the future. And, and there's huge more developments down the track that are going to unfold in the coming weeks, months and years. That, I mean, it's been interesting so far, but the process and what's coming about is going to get even far more interesting in terms of developments than, than we've currently seen. In some ways, we're just on the very tip of the iceberg of these developments and what's going to come about as a result of it is 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 far more interesting and than what we've seen so far which i think in the last two or three years the developments have been incredible 
Yeah, it truly is. In, in every in every scope and in every way, it has truly been uh, incredible. The multipolar world moves on. And the question has always been, um, you know, where, where is the United States going to fit in? And the other thing is this. I mean, Japan well, <sighs> Japan is also signing up some really good deals with the Russians as well. They're, they're getting along great. Well, yeah, and 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 so are the Chinese and the Japanese. It's not. I mean, it's this idea they're enemies, but look at just go and look at the bilateral trade agreements and how the trade between those nations is is growing exponentially year on year and has been for a while. So, yeah, I mean, Japan still has problems as a a notional vassal state of the of Washington, but increasingly less. So, and when I say Washington, obviously, I don't mean the Trump administration, but. I think it's a good point to then talk about the fact that obviously US Secretary of Defense Mattis met with Xi Jinping yesterday. I mean, we've got parallels between him meeting Xi Jinping and Bolton meeting obviously Putin. And I think the statements that Xi came out with are very telling because equally Mattis would have been told in no uncertain terms, you know, you may think this is how it's been in the past. The world's changing, and as G said, the world's undergoing major developments, transformation, and adjustment. He talked about the world, the trends of world multipolarization and economic globalization are developing in depth, and countries have become more interdependent. What he's referring to is not cabal globalization, it's the end of unipolar cabal the unipolar US hegemic cabal mentality. And it's the birth of true globalization. We've never had globalization. We've had cabal globalization, which is a dictatorship that tells every nation on the planet what to do, how to do it, and when to blow their nose and how high to jump. And he was very keen to stress the fact China's gonna stay on a path of peaceful development. It's not going to pursue the path of expansionism or colonialism because it knows it's insanity to do so. He also mentioned the fact, as he said, the Pacific Ocean is vast enough to accommodate China and the US as well as all these other nations. And he wants China and the United States to promote the development of bilateral trade, but it has to be on the basis of mutual trust and respect and a win-win cooperation. And he made a very telling comment. And I, I mean, this is about as polite as you can get without being extremely forceful when he said, you know, China's stance is steadfast and clear cut when it comes to China's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Any inch of our territory passed down from on our, our ancestors cannot be lost. And whilst we want nothing from others, so effectively what he's saying to, um, to Mattis is, look, you're not gonna challenge us in the South China Sea. There are islands, we'll do what we like and you're not going to bully us and attempt to to sway on our you know, neighbors in the region either in the process. And he also mentioned the fact that military relations have maintained this sound momentum in recent years. And he said that real experts on military affairs don't want to employ military means to solve issues. So he's effectively saying, look, we have the military capability, but the important fact is we're all for diplomacy. That's what we want with the US. So we don't want to get into to conflict. We want to resolve all the doubts, misunderstandings, the lack of judgment that is, that's come about between our relations. And they want to strengthen communication, increase trust, deepen cooperation, and manage and, and control all the risks between their military. And therefore to act as a, the basic sort of 
effectively the cornerstone of bilateral relations going forward. Now, Mattis attaches great importance to relations between the two countries. But, you know, he also says, well, I'm guided by heads of state and in the two nations. So is he is he offering an olive branch saying, well, you know, Trump's got a view on, on China, although perversely, of course, Trump's view on China economically is utterly flawed, as we've said. And we'll come to that in a minute because there's some other examples of why this is becoming a problem. And obviously, he, you know, Mattis is fully aware that there's processes that need to be to be dealt with. But then he also talks about the small islands in the South China Sea, the Spratleys, etc., and says, but we under the freedom of navigation, you know, have our right to, to patrol these regions, even though Beijing keeps saying, look, why are you doing this? This is thousands of miles from the US. It's got nothing to do with you. We're not threatening. We're just, it's there as, in a, as a defensive mechanism. It's a bit like telling the US to take all defense uh, uh, mechanisms out of, say, Alaska or the West Coast. And, you know, you're not allowed to defend the, these territories. Now, they argue that the territories don't belong to China. China argues to the contrary. And really, the US is best to walk away from that and stop acting inflammatory. And, you know, the other thing is that, you know, the problem is that the U.S. seeks opportunities increase to increase and project what it thinks it's its power and to defend its allies. This is something Mattis came out with yesterday, which is completely contradictory to to obviously the Chinese perspective. And you mentioned it or we when we discussed a few weeks ago, the way it's now the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. And they're thinking, oh, this reflects the American focus on the region. And and it's the largest of their five geographical sort of combatant commands. It actually employs nearly 400,000 civilian and military personnel over a region that's about 52% of the Earth's surface. And, you know, in addition to the South China Sea, the U.S. presence in the region also undermines Beijing's interest in Taiwan and the East China Sea, which because... Washington wants to retain its sphere of influence in the region. And this is something that the, the, the U.S. is going to have to get over themselves and stop trying to implement and dictate in the part of the world that has there really is of no concern to them in reality. And, of course, there's the whole one China policy. And yet the Washington National Defense Authorization Act for 2019 is talking about promoting defense and security cooperation with Taiwan, including weapons sales to maintain what they're saying is sufficient self-defense capability. No, it's highly antagonistic. It's meaningless. It's pointless. It's more wasting billions and ultimately trillions of dollars on in parts of the world. They have no reason to be there except in this, in this juncture. They're just antagonizing the Chinese. So Mattis is made fully aware with the meeting with Xi that this is not acceptable. Now, in terms of trade, and the whole tariff situation. What do we find? Someone informed me that in Kansas, there's sorghum crops that are basically just sitting lying around outside grain elevators. Why? Because China said, we're not going to buy them from you anymore. We're going to buy them from Venezuela instead. There's also reports there's, there's people in farming communities that are committing suicide because they're financially ruined. Now, it's not solely caused by the problems associated with these trade deals, but this certainly is making things worse. And what do we also see? China is devalued the yuan by about 
since the trade war debacle started. Effectively, that increases. That's like putting a tariff of 6% on US uh, uh, products because, it, interestingly, up until recently, they hadn't devalued the currency against uh, other currencies, only the dollar. And then what we find in relation to South Carolina, someone brought this to my attention, that um, obviously in South Carolina, they have a lot of international business. There's a Michelin tire, French tire manufacturer. It's got its North American headquarters outside of Greenville. Obviously, it makes tires for cars, buses, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's a manufacturing plant for the South Korean, uh, you know, Samsung that opened last year. That's near, well, about an hour's drive from Greenville where they make washing machine. But the biggest development is that the crown jewel for there is the BMW factory in Greer. Now, that's obviously the most productive assembly plant in the world, the one in Greer, and it's the only one in the United States. And every BMW crossover SUV is now made in South Carolina. Now, what does Trump do? He's in South Carolina on Monday, and he mentions BMW and all the issues to do with, because obviously Trump's threatening the European Union with 20% tariffs on car imports. Yet, BMW builds its non-crossover SUVs in Europe and then ships them to consumers in the US. Yes, that's true. And yeah, they sell a lot of vehicles in Europe, but it's in America where the demand for crossovers is highest. And it's great business for BMW to make them in the US. It's great business for, for South Carolina. And also in South Carolina, they've also attracted foreign automakers to locate their plants there. Why? Because it has relatively cheap labor costs. It's got a better business environment and a low cost a uh, high standard of living. There's also the nearby port of Charleston. And the result of the plant opening nearly 25 years ago is that thousands in upstate South Carolina are employed by BMW. And the spin-offs from this, because BMW's there, you get other supportive industries in the area, manufacturing, services, consulting, that have grown out of the dependence on BMW's presence. And you've got between Greenville and Spartanburg, there's all these industrial parks that are directly tied to the fact that BMW has this plant in Greer. But to Trump, BMW and other car manufacturers have contributed to the US losing $150 billion to the European Union. But what he's referring to is a trade deficit. But it doesn't assign a value of what the US has lost because it's investments by foreign companies like BMW that's actually reducing the US trade deficit. So in the process, if they cause major problems and BMW pulls out, it's gonna cost thousands of jobs. It's gonna significantly impact the economy in that region. And here's the other point, we talk about the midterms now. We all know a lot of Trump's voters were in the so-called Rust Belt. And in South Carolina, he got around 55% of the vote. And that is obviously buoyed by the, the fact of all the trade and this globalized economy. Now, the fact is, what happens if BMW pulls out or other European companies operating in South Carolina or elsewhere in the US decide to do the same? Is this going to impact the vote on Trump when they see their jobs being lost? I mean, Harley Davidson said they're going to move some of its motorcycles to Europe in response to these retaliatory tariffs. Well, the same thing applies. Trump suddenly goes, Oh, I'm a bit surprised Harley Davidson's doing this. I'm not surprised. It's the least surprising thing about the whole issue of tariffs and what we've highlighted again. Putting these tariffs on is directly impacting. I mean, we've talked about South Carolina as one example. But this is something also that undoubtedly Xi would have talked to Mattis about and said, look, 
you're going to end up damaging your own economy. There is a simple way around this. We don't need to have tariffs. We just need to end up having free trade agreement between nations. And also in the process, you need to start to integrate in the Belt and Road Initiative, which comes back to, to your original statement that we've come full circle. There. That's precisely what the US eventually will do. And the sooner it does it, the, the, it will give stability to the US economy. It will allow more foreign direct investment in the US, which will stimulate growth and jobs and improve the US economy, reduce the trade deficit and give the US some solid foundation going forward at the moment. The trade deficit's only going to grow in the more and they antagonize nations. I mean, effectively, it's become almost like the U.S. is now uh, economically, it's become the U.S. against the rest of the world because nations are now starting to say, hang on, you, you put in these tariffs on, even though they may not be directly affected, they're going, OK, we're going to put tariffs on you because they're now so concerned about the backlash and the repercussions of this. This is just not a sensible strategy and it has to end now, hopefully, Mattis Tongji will have gone some way to addressing this point. And the US has a rethink. And I think to some extent, Trump has already started to go, hang on, well, maybe we need to look more about the foreign direct investment of Chinese companies in the US. Maybe there's a slow uh, you know, regression away from this all out trade war, which is effectively what it's becoming. And the US needs to do this ASAP. It needs to, we get back to the point we said practically the day Trump was inaugurated. He needs to work with the Chinese and Russians. They're the two nations on the planet the U.S. needs to work with. Well, he's got the summit with Putin coming up, which hopefully will start to show some real positive developments with the Russians, despite the old Mueller debacle in the, in the background. And the same, hopefully, with the Chinese in the process that China doesn't want a trade war. But if the U.S. wants a trade war, they're going to get a trade war they'll wish they never started. And it's the same with respect to the South China Sea. The U.S. militarily wants to keep exerting itself. The Chinese are not going to tolerate it, and they will respond in kind. It's a, it's a, it simply is a fact that China is ne rather like the Russians always say, we're never going to start a war, whatever that war is. But by you know, by goodness, we're going to end it, and that's exactly what China will do. And the U.S. does not need it. Yeah, they, it, Trump knows the problems it's going to have going forward, because undoubtedly, when the Federal Reserve note ceases to be the world's reserve currency the u.s is going to have many challenges ahead well start to build bridges with the nations who can help make those challenges less of a problem if they don't the u.s is going to have an impossible job of managing its transition in the next few years it's going to make things infinitely more difficult so it's very very from my perspective it's very simple and often the most simple outlook is the way that is the way forward. I think Trump knows exactly what needs to be done. So whatever w people are whispering in his ear about how things should be done, that needs to stop. He needs to start to get back to the fact that, yeah, he is a businessman primarily. He's not a politician. And for that, I'm very grateful. But he needs to start to realize that you can't treat nations uh, like Russia and China as a business deal. And sometimes it's worth letting companies like BMW into your nation because it generates a lot of growth. It generates employment because of the fact that the, the spin-offs that are very, very positive. So don't look at the fact of tariffs on, on automobiles. Look at the benefits that the U.S. gets from having BMW in South Carolina. And that is the only way to look at these relationships. It, you have to look at everything in totality, not specifically say, 
well, I'm having these problems with this region. I've got these this trade deficit. Therefore, I'm going to penalise you as a whole. Look at individual relations. Talk to to the, to the, the Germans about BMW and say, look, we've got a problem with tariffs. Can we resolve this on an individual basis? Get some agreement with you because we feel then it will make, you know, it will start to resolve the problem on a specific basis. But don't just you know, carte blanche take make a decision that affects the entire European Union or affects China in totality, because it simply will never work. Very well said. Last but not least, Paul, um, in response to this, you still have a lot of tension in Italy, and also just right now it was uh, announced. Also, the Trump-Putin summit has been made official. It is going to be July the 16th, on my birthday, no less. They will be meeting in Helsinki. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what's what, a, what, what a, a point in Yeah, what a birthday present. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the EU summit. I mean, I mean, the irony is it it will highlight far more about the deficiencies inside Brussels and the European Union than anything else. But I think the summit's of major significance to Merkel because we talked about this domestically. You know, there's no headway between the CDU and the Social Democrats about migration talks. Seehofer, who's the CSU party leader, we've, who's, you know, there's kind of this, you know, coalition between the CDU and the CSU. And he's, he made a comment, which I think was interesting, because he said, I know of nobody in my party who either wants to endanger the government or bring down the chancellor. That's, he didn't say it's never going to happen. He says, I know of nobody. Well, what about the nobodies in his party who want it to happen? I mean, I'm not saying he does know, but it's a, it, it's a bit of a strange choice of words from my perspective. I mean, I think Merkel's days are numbered. It doesn't matter. It's going to happen next week, next month. But the writing's on the wall for her. I mean, and Italy are very strident about this, the EU draft on, on migration. It got shelved. Merkel's now terrified and is trying to make concessions by going, well, you know, we're going to have to have a tough but humane asylum and migration policy for the European Union. So she's already starting to to back off to a degree. But Europe's got major problems. There's there's Deutsche Bank, there's the European debt crisis rearing its head, there's this rise in European populism that's making Brussels have an aneurysm. There's the escalating trade war with the US and Brexit talks are kind of faltering. But migration for Germany is a particular problem because there's Bavarian state elections in October. The fear from the CSU and the CDU is that the AFD party could make significant gains, which is entirely possible based on the whole immigration issue. So Merkel's then going, well, I might have to completely back off with regards to immigration. It depends how, if a solution's actually reached in terms of the EU, but this new Italian government's already said, we're not prepared to tolerate the burden that's being put on Italy with regards to migrants coming over from North Africa. They're turning away migrant ships. And, of course, we have all these platitudes coming out from Brussels going, well, we're having this frank and open discussion about migration, although the reality, there's never any concrete consequences or conclusions ever agreed. I don't think there's going to be any agreement on this whatsoever. I think it will just fracture the European Union even further, and it's going to weaken Merkel, because unless Merkel does a total 180, and, and agrees to what the Italians want and countless other nations, such as Hungary, Austria, uh, 
the Czech Republic, Slovakia, etc., want in terms of migration, then then nothing's ever going to get resolved. The whole Brexit thing is becoming, I mean, whilst it's not an issue from my perspective, it's interesting because, you know, the, the whole issue now is about this Irish border between the North and the South, for anyone who doesn't know. Uh, the south, south of Ireland is obviously part of the European Union, as is the North, but the North's part of the UK, and the South's an independent nation. It has the Euro, and the Northern Ireland has the pound. Now, you've got free border movement between the two countries, but the argument is, when Britain leaves Brexit, you're going to have a proper border, because otherwise the risk is you're going to get people all flooding into Ireland who will then, will then flood into the UK, and that will be a sort of route to to for migrants and that's the bit you know whether rightly or wrongly whether that happens or not that's a big sort of bone of contention what happens with the irish border and and may is saying well we're going to provide some more vision on in, in and there's a white paper coming out um at early july well i don't think it's going to mean anything i mean you could have resolved the whole brexit issue in about four weeks it was very simple what needed to be done but it highlights once again the deficiencies of the UK government and it also highlights the deficiencies of the European Union. You've also got us, we say all the tariffs on autos from the EU and 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 then you know the, the EU is going to put um, countermeasures in. They're going to have a discussion about that and do absolutely nothing because they haven't got the foresight to sit down and actually resolve this matter in, in an intelligent way. The EU budget's a major problem because Germany and France are miles apart. That's in terms of the budget size and also what it needs to be spent on. I mean, they're talking about we want investment to, to have structural improvements in, the, in an economy of nations that are all bust, including the whole financial system. And then they're talking about, well, we want to have a budget for macroeconomic stabilization. Well, how do you stabilize a, a basket case fiat currency and a basket case European Union that's broke bust? I mean, it's, it's actually uh, totally farcical. So the summit's going to come to an end. Probably nothing's going to get agreed on. It's just going to highlight the deficiencies of why the European Union is, is, a, is frankly, a, an utterly failed project for all the reasons we know, and why the European Union, as it will be in the future, which is going to be about nations working together in bilateral cooperation with free trade, win-win cooperation, no dictatorship from Brussels in terms of rules, laws and regulation. And exactly how the European Union was sold to everyone as the European common market before they stripped the edifice and the reality of what the European Union was always going to be. And they fooled countless nations in the process to, to integrate that. But it's worth pointing out as well that Britain's intransigence over Brexit, over the European Union, was a major thorn in the side of the cabal. So whilst lots of people believe that all the evils of the cabal reside in 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 London, and in, they don't. They absolutely don't. The, the The UK has been a major thorn in their side with regards to to the European Union in terms of rules, regulations being adopted. They were forever thwarting things to be implemented. And by the way, I'm not suggesting the UK is 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 perfect and wonderful and is not responsible for things. It most certainly is. But there are some things that they get blamed for. They're not responsible for, and there are things. They're never blamed for that they are responsible for. But I think that the, the whole Brexit vote was the one good thing that came out of it. It was the beginning of the end of the European Union as it is now. It started to, to highlight the deficiencies. And, and in a way, it's great that the whole negotiation process has failed 
because it's highlighted the incompetence and the stupidity and it woke other nations up to the fact that it was a dictatorship because any nation should be able to stand up and say, do you know what, we're going to leave. We don't want to be part of this union anymore. We want to reassert our sovereignty when they realised that wasn't possible. They started to make nations back away from the European Union and, and that's why we're now starting to see the beginning of the end of it. The problem is nations have woken up too little too late. They should have woken up to this a decade ago and when we had the financial crisis, that should have been the wake-up call and they should have looked to get out and extricate themselves from the mess. But because it is too little too late, they're going to suffer the backlash of all the problems in the process. But at least there is a recognition that it has to end and the EU summit will resolve nothing. It won't change anything. It's not going to... All it will do is highlight the crass deficiencies which we know exist, but that's a good thing because it's a way of highlighting that this cabal-driven world is an utter failure from the perspective of all humanity and it has to end. And the European Union was one of the gigantic experiments in controlling all nations in, in totality. And in, in the end, they would have given nations no say in anything because gradually more and more laws and powers were taken away from nations. This was what actually annoyed and irritated people in the UK. They were sick of it and they went, we want our sovereignty back as a nation. And yeah, it was a bit of a surprise to, to Brussels when the Brexit vote happened. I suspect the percentage was higher. I think the vote was rigged and it was rigged to try and make it not happen, but still sufficient people voted to make it, to, make, to pass it. And there's been huge amounts of effort to try and say there needs to be a second referendum, etc. But it's now being voted into law. Britain leaves at the end of March 2019. Whether the European Union as it is now still exists like in that capacity in nine months' time is another matter. But, but it was a good thing that the vote happened because it was a very telling moment in the destruction of the EU. And that's why we're seeing Merkel teetering now on the edge of, of political oblivion as a result of Brexit being the trigger that it was the domino effect of, that started to trigger a whole bunch of events in Europe. And that's where we are now and why the EU summit will just be rather like the G7. It's a G7 of pointless nations not discussing anything, not doing anything, because frankly, none of them have the capability to do it. Because nations aren't run by genuine leaders. When you have genuine leaders like Putin and Xi, you see how nations progress and develop. When you have nations that aren't, then you see just how fractured, how increasingly indebted they become, how nothing gets resolved. And yet we still have people buying into this partisan political system. I mean, the reality is Trump may be part of the Republicans, but he's not a Republican. He couldn't stand as an independent. But I still see too much of this. It's the Democrats and the Republicans. That neither political party is serving the purpose it wants to. The Democrats is utterly failed and dysfunctional. But the amount of obstruction that Trump has within the Republican Party to the things he's trying to do is not helpful either. And also there's a lot of cesspit and rotting individuals in the Republicans and the neocons as much as there are in the Democrats. And I think the bipartisan thing is, is, is a way that got Trump elected. But ultimately, I don't think it's helping or will ultimately help the US as much as if there's a realization that bipartisan politics is, is part of the problem. And also in that what concerns me a bit is that it's making the US very divided between those people who sit on either side of the fence. The, the US needs to be have a united nation of people 
who understand what's ben what's beneficial and and better for the U.S. as a whole. And the U.K. is the same. It's equally as totally dysfunctional in terms of partisan politics, without realizing that neither party ultimately serves the the purpose. I think Trump at least gives the U.S. huge hope in the fact that he's not a career politician. He's trying to do everything to remove the very obstacles. Uh, in his own country, but in the process, he's going to have to deal with the Republicans, as we know, and and that is a big problem. Why the whole thing gets stalled with Russia for that very reason? Because he's got people in his own party who are very anti-Russian, as we never mind the Democrat. Well, there's a weird thing that the Democrats have all this anti-Russian attitude, and then and then we look at what the the you know the Obama administration and the Clintons do with the Russians. I mean, it's just, but we know all this anyway. This is hardly news, but. It is a problem, and it, it's the a fact that partisan politics going forward has no place. Because that, while it does, it just totally undermines nation, and it gets everyone to to have fundamental disagreements about the things that there needs to be an agreement. And whether you like China or dislike China, and you you think it's a dictatorship or a totalitarian state, the fact it's a one party state actually has benefited the Chinese far more than having a pseudo. Partisan two three party state that we have in the UK and the US because things actually get done, and the Chinese Communist Party actually knows if it doesn't do it, the Chinese people will revolt against, and that's why eight hundred million people have been taken out of poverty and all the other things we've discussed for the last year and a half or so, and that's why we have to be careful about you know the illusion of party politics and a one party state. China does very well out of a one-party system, and it's actually for them more democratic than a two-party state system we've had that the cabal control both sides of the equation. Well said, Paul. London, Paul, the man, the myth, the legend himself. Paul, thank you so much for being on. And folks, again, check out theseriousreport.com. Theseriousreport.com. Subscribe. Get the report for the less than the price of a Starbucks mocha latte, frappuccino, macchiato, you name whatever crazy coffee drink they've come up with this week. For less than the price of that, you can get yourself a subscription to the Serious Report for less than $5, $4.75, and make it happen for yourself. Get yourself a global geostrategic education. With that being said, CJ, we're over and out. Take it away, brother.